Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. We are beginning a new series today. Uh, I did a series last year. We called it We Little Man, and we dove into the story of Zacchaeus. And the concept behind that is taking a familiar story that we remember from childhood or from kids' church and really diving into the context of that. So today we're beginning a new series in the same vein and taking a familiar story, one we've known since childhood, and we're going to dive into the context, and that is the story of David and Goliath. So we're going to spend this month uh, looking into, uh, in depth into the story of David and Goliath. It's one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture, also one of the most taken-out-of-context stories in all of the Bible. Uh, anytime you watch a sporting event where one side is heavily favored, we call it a true David and Goliath story. Um, when Texas Christian University played against the University of Georgia for the national championship, I can't tell you how many times I heard uh, it is a true David and Goliath story. The problem is usually Goliath destroys David, like happened in that game, and then the uh, analogy doesn't work out so well. So it's not always used in the appropriate context, but what I want to do is I want to study it in its original context and see what we can take from it. And I want to begin today by looking at sort of the historical context of what took place in the story of David and Goliath. So this is going to be more of a teaching than preaching today, but we're going to spend a lot of time really laying the foundation for the rest of this message, this series. So most of our time today is actually going to be spent in the first 11 verses of the story. We find this in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdemim uh, between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistines' camp, and his height was six cubits and a span. And I'm just going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, if you look in the footnotes of your Bible, it probably says that that is around nine foot nine. Really tall guy. Now, the Bible never uses the, wor the word giant to describe Goliath. Uh, and there have been archaeological discoveries from this time period that suggest that that height might not have been an exaggeration. Uh, but I wanted to share a couple things just to consider uh, they've made other discoveries in that area, and one of those, uh, they discovered that when it talks about a cubit, uh, usually we base that measurement off of what a cubit is in Egypt. However, they have discovered that a cubit in this region was actually a little bit less than it is in Egypt, and if it goes by that, then it takes him down to 7 foot 10, still a really tall guy. But I'm just saying, uh, don't fight to the death on the exact height of Goliath because we actually don't know for sure. And actually, they've made other discoveries, uh, and they found in documents that the phrase four cubits in a span is a, uh, an idiom of sorts, a phrase that just meant really tall and strong. So to say that, that he was six cubits in a span, span could have meant this was a really big and strong guy and then some. So we don't know for sure the exact height of Goliath, but uh, again, he could have been nine foot nine. That's very possible because we have found remains that, that suggest that. Now, whether or not he was actually that tall, uh, it, it's kind of a moot point because 
the point is he was an intimidating and fierce warrior. And in fact, we're about to see that he had to be massive because his suit of armor weighed 125 pounds. So this was not a small guy. He had to be really big to wear just the armor. So continuing in verse 5, it says he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Uh, that's about 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him... You will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine, Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and the, all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So I'm going to stop uh, reading right there for now. Most of us are familiar with, with what takes place after this moment. David arrives to check on his brothers who are in the army. Uh, he hears Goliath making this challenge. Uh, so he says, hey, I'll take him up on the challenge. And with King Saul's approval, David meets, King, uh, uh, meets Goliath on the battlefield with a single, or he puts a single stone into Goliath's forehead, and then he uh, beheads Goliath with his own sword. So we'll get more into those details later in the series, but today I want to stay just in the text that we read earlier and beginning with verse 3 where it says the Philistine occupied one, uh, Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So these locations, all of them mentioned in verse 1, we know exactly where they are, which means we know where this uh, battle took place. If you'll put that scripture on, or that uh, picture on the screen, Greg. Uh, what we have here right in the foreground is the valley, uh, the valley of Elah. That's where the Israelites' encampment was. The hill just beyond the valley uh, is where they lined up for battle. And then at the very top of the screen, you can see another hill. That's where the Philistines lined up for battle. And between those two hills is where David met Goliath. Now, if we were to continue to verse 16, it tells us that this, this circumstance, this event happened for 40 days, 40 straight days where the, the armies would line up and Goliath would come down and challenge the Israelites and no one would do anything, and they would go home and go to sleep. Now, why do the armies take their sides, take their positions for battle for 40 days and do nothing? And it's actually, it's pretty simple. It comes down to military strategy. So uh, when I was a kid, we played a, a lot of really dumb games uh, that I wouldn't want my kids to play, but they probably will. One of those we called King of the Hill or King of the Mountain, uh, which is basically there's a dirt mound, and one kid goes to the top of the mound, and everyone else just tries to throw him down the hill and take his spot. And whoever's on the top of the hill is the king of the mountain. Now, uh, the, the king or the person on the top of the hill has a distinct advantage. He has the higher ground. And it's a lot harder to defeat him if you are coming up at him from lower ground. Now, in this image, if you, if you can just see, both of them have the higher ground. Both of them are on top of the hill. So for one side to attack the other, 
means that they are giving up the higher ground and saying, you can keep your higher ground and we'll come at you from below. So neither of them want to do that. So for 40 days straight, they're just kind of waiting on the mountaintop, on the hilltop, saying, well, you come to us. And they're saying, no, you come to us. So they send Goliath every day and say, well, let's just send uh, one person from each side. Uh, he issues a challenge basically and says, send your best warrior, and we'll just say winner take all. And what's going on here, again, is not that unusual. It's a known practice called single combat. So if two nations were at war and the leaders want to minimize casualties, instead of everyone going to battle, they can send their best warrior to fight and winner take all. Now, I want you to stay with me because this is where the story kind of takes a turn. The Philistines chose their best man, the mammoth warrior, Goliath. However, what we don't often consider is that the Israelites also chose their guy, and it wasn't David. Um, if, if we consider Israel's history, uh, it was never God's desire for Israel to have a king. Uh, prior to them having a king, Israel is what we call a theocracy. It is a nation that was governed by God. Uh, and after Moses and Joshua, God established what were called judges to lead the people. Uh, they would lead the nation of Israel purely under God's guidance. And this was God's desire was just to, to God would govern the nation through the judges. And Judges chapter 2 gives us kind of a snapshot of what's happening in that culture Whenever the nation of Israel would get into trouble, uh, this is what would happen. We find it in Judges chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. And they quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. And he saved them out of the hands of the enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So this cycle is continuing on and on. And the, the nation of Israel, the people are actually getting further and further away from God. And eventually, they just don't want their, government, want their nation to be governed this way at all anymore. And they look around at the, the surrounding nations and they say, all of these nations have a king. I want one too. So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, it says, All of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was the last judge. And they said to him, You are old. I love that. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. This is the way that God saw what was happening. God viewed it this way. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king and their leader. So he says in verse 8, As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. 
Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now what happens next is really interesting. I don't know if you've ever um, listened to like a political or presidential debate and they talk for several hours and then at the end you're just kind of like, I wonder what was true that they said. <laughs> you kind of never know. You're going to find out in their term. Well, what happens here is God tells them exactly what's going to happen if they want a king. He says, he's going to take your sons and put them at the front of his army. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to make them serve in his kingdom. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's going to take the best of your vineyards. He's going to take a tenth of your crop. He's going to take a tenth of your livestock. And then God says, in that day when you ask for relief from the king's oppression, I'm going to ignore you because you have asked for this. You have rejected God as your king and you have asked for what's taking place and I'm warning you ahead of time. And you would think when God says this to the people, they would say, maybe the grass isn't greener. Maybe we don't want that after all. But of course, that's not what happens. And I want you to pay close attention to their response. This is 1 Samuel 8, verse 19. It says, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all of the other nations with a king to lead us and to do what? To go out before us and fight our battles. Why did they want a king? They wanted a king so they would have someone to go out before them and to fight their battles. Remember I said Israel chose their guy and it wasn't David? Saul was supposed to be the guy. Saul, King Saul is the guy who's supposed to be fighting Goliath in this moment. And it's in his job description. And not only that, but he's the logical choice because the Bible says that, that Saul was a head above everyone else in Israel. So physically, he's the closest match for Goliath. But do you remember what Saul is doing in the midst of Goliath's threats? We read it earlier back in uh, chapter 17, verse 11. It says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And that word dismayed literally means they were shattered. They were paralyzed by fear. Their great leader that they had asked for is paralyzed by fear. And rather than, than going to battle like he's supposed to do, Paul or, or Saul, he, he is just paralyzed in fear, and that is where David enters the story. The, the entire story that we have of David and Goliath is not actually about David and Goliath. It's about David and Saul. It's about recognizing Saul's leadership versus David's leadership. Recognizing the man who looked the part versus the man who had the heart and had God's anointing. Uh, if, if we go back a, a few chapters even, uh, what we find is, let me see. I'll move to that in just a minute. I, I wanted to mention too, it's just a kind of irony. Uh, the name Saul comes from the Hebrew word shawl, which means asked for. So his, his actual name is you asked for him basically. And the guy that they asked for is not doing what they asked for him to do. But okay, uh, so if we go back a few chapters, what's interesting is Saul looked the part. Uh, just a few chapters earlier, Saul is rescuing entire cities. 
And Saul, he builds an army of 300,000 men. He looks the part of the king. He's doing his job. In chapter 11, he's fighting an entire Ammonite nation. In chapter 14, he fights the Philistine army and he defeats them. And then we get to chapter 17, three chapters later, and he is quivering in fear, just like everyone else in Israel. So the question that I was really just asking this week is, what changed? How did he get from point A to point B? And the first answer is little by little. Uh, it, it, it's not an instantaneous change that happens in Saul's life where he goes from this, this place where he is the ultimate warrior, so to speak, to, to just another man uh, who is shaking in fear. What began to happen in Saul's life is as he had more success, pride began to creep in. And the Bible says pride comes before the, the fall. Pride began to, to, to seep into Paul's to Saul's life little by little. And he stopped listening to God's command. He would kind of half follow God's command. If God told him to destroy everything, then he would destroy most things and he would keep the really good stuff, the choice livestock, things like that. So Ultimately, what happened is God rejected Saul as king. And then we get to what was the knockout blow in his leadership. So chapter 17 is where we have uh, Saul and Goliath, and he's, he's shaking in fear. If we back up one chapter to chapter 16, verse 14, it simply says this, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This was the knockout blow. The Spirit of God departed from Saul. And this is one verse removed from verse 13 where it says this, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerful, powerfully upon David. What is the difference between these two men? The man who looks the part but is cowering in fear versus the man who doesn't look the part but he stands up and he says, I'll fight him. I'll go to war. The difference is the spirit of the living God. And what we have is we have this Old Testament example of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, which says that the, the spirit of God, the spirit that God gave us does not make us timid or it's not a spirit of fear but it is a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Now, there is an immeasurable difference between then and now. In the Old Testament, what you have with the Spirit of God is the Spirit comes upon the select few. God would choose a leader here or there, the judge or the king or the prophet, and he would place the Holy Spirit upon them. But what happens after the cross is the Bible says Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit, and when you place your faith in him, you receive the Holy Spirit into your life. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says the very same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is now alive inside of you. I love to use the example of Rob back when we were at church at the mall. And uh, one day he came and he said, hey, I, ha I have those same shoes. And uh, the reality is, no, you don't. You have the same brand. You might have the same color. They might have the same smell. But you have your pair, and I have my pair. 
But when the Bible says the very same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is inside of you, it doesn't mean that you have one just like Jesus's or you have one the same color or the same smell. or the, that's, No, he says that spirit, the spirit of the living God has been placed on the inside of you. And we can go all, back, all the way back to the story of Saul and David and say, what is the difference? The difference is the Spirit of God was taken off of one man and placed upon another. That is the, the, the sole defining difference between these two men. And this reality goes far beyond fear and timidity. If we looked at the, the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says it's love, joy, peace, uh, forbearance or patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we look at these things and we look at our life and we say, what is absent of this? It's not because you are lacking them. Because if you have received the Holy Spirit, this is the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit in your life. So, so if you're not producing them, what that means is you're not walking step in step with the Spirit. In fact, that's the, the, what it says in verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If you are lacking any of the fruits of the Spirit, it just simply means that we are not keeping in step with the Spirit of God in our lives. Church, so many of our struggles, so many of our shortcomings are because, it's not because we can't, it's because we're not keeping in step with the Spirit of God. Renee, could you come? Uh, Jesus said in John 15, chapter 5, He said, I am the vine and you are the branches, and if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And He said this, Apart from me, you can do nothing. The church is not a place where you come and you meet with God here and then you leave God here and you go out and you live your life for the rest of the week and, and you try to live off of what you experienced here until you make it back. That's not what the church is. The Holy Spirit within you goes with you everywhere you go. Whether or not you are engaged with Him, that's up to you. But in the school, in the workplace, in the family, in every moment, the Spirit of God is with you. And what Saul tries to do is he tries to continue to operate apart from the Spirit of God, and he can't do it. Because when you strip him of the Spirit of God, Saul is just a shell of his former self. He doesn't have the leadership that he used to have. He doesn't have the strength that he used to have. He doesn't have the boldness or the bravery that he used to have. Why? Because he doesn't have the Spirit of God that he used to have. He doesn't have the Spirit of God anymore that is living inside of you that brings boldness and faith and trust and love and patience and kindness and every good thing into your life. Church, it is there. All you have to do is access it by submitting to the Spirit of God in your life. Can you stand with me this morning? Jesus, your word says, apart from you, we can do nothing. So I believe this morning, Lord, that some of us need to repent. 
I think we need to repent for trying so hard to do things apart from you. Trying to hold things together apart from you. This morning, I, I pray, God, that a partnership is formed where we begin to open our, our hands and give you some of these things that we're holding on to so tightly. We say, God, you can have our finances. You can have control of our families, our workplace. Uh, every part of us, God, we surrender to you and to your spirit. And we say, God, help us to walk in submission and step in step with your spirit. What I want to challenge you to, church, as Renee leads us, is ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. God, are there places that I am trying to do this without you? Lord, would you reveal those places to us this morning? For this morning, we invite you into every crevice, and every hidden place, and every secret place of our heart. Recognize your providence in every moment. And as we recognize that, that by your spirit we would have boldness, Lord, to share, to share your good news. Lord, I pray as we leave this place that we have an impact on your kingdom. Thank you so much for being here. Baptism's July 30th. If you're interested, let me know. Uh, and there was another announcement. Do you remember it? Let's see how well you guys, let's, let's test your memory here. <laughs> All right. We're going to find out. Oh, you asked for it, cards. Thanks for listening so well, church. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.